strenuously denying all rumours about our sexuality. Welcome to Hand of Pod. Argentine special preview for the Copa America that we're doing on Hand of Pod. I'm Sam Kelly, as usual, and this evening I'm joined in person by English Dan. Hello. And via the wonders of Skype from uh, California, is that right? It's correct. Um, by Nicolas, Nicolas Rossano, who, as you can already hear, is, is an American. Hi, Nick. Hey. I mean, can we start off by just asking you what it is that, that qualifies you to, to talk about Uruguay um, in this respect, because Uruguay are the team that we're going to be focusing on for this special edition. Sure. I've always been a big fan of South American football. On the uh, you know, on the TV here, I guess it was a few years ago, they used to show a bunch of Argent- Argentine Primera matches, and since then I've kind of looked around the continent, and I've really kind of fallen in love with, with Uruguayan football. In the university, I studied history, and so as a student of history, it's really nice, to, uh, it's really interesting to see exactly how closely kind of your history intertwines with football, and then they obviously have a huge history, and so that's what's kind of drawn me to them. And have you had the pleasure of going to Uruguay and seeing any games, Nick? Yes. Um, I actually ended up living in Chile for a little bit in 2009, and during was lucky enough to travel around Argentina and Uruguay, and I had the pleasure of seeing Nacional win the 2009 championship against Defensor Sporting at the Centenario. Fantastic. That was in the playoff final, um, Yes. which which I remember you correcting me about uh, a few weeks ago on Twitter (laughs) when I was getting confused and forgetful about how the Uruguayan championship works. Are are Nacional your... Your Uruguayan team, or do you support one of the other clubs? Or if, yeah, if I had to pick one, I would say it's Nacional. I mean, I kind of went there with an open mind, and you know, the people I met in Uruguay were mostly Nacional fans. It took me along with them to the final, so I would say yes, Nacional are my team in Uruguay. Excellent. Cool. Now, obviously, you're not in Uruguay, but presumably you're you're able to keep up to date. You know, yes. Argentina. obviously, I I know about this because I spent a lot of time writing about Argentina before I actually moved down here last year. What's the kind of the mood going to be like in Uruguay ahead of this Copa America? I think uh, a lot of people are quietly optimistic. Uh, obviously, we, we know that Uruguay made the uh, semifinals of the uh, 2010 World Cup, and not a lot has changed in the uh, in the national team setup since then. Oscar Tabárez is the, is the coach once more. And they have in the, their Copa America squad uh, 21 of the players that um, participated in the World Cup last year. So I think, given the consistency in um, kind of in their squad and in their system, a lot of people are thinking a semifinal, if not the final, is a realistic goal for Uruguay. Yeah. Um, out of interest, who is missing from from last year's World Cup squad in this in this one? I can, I can tell you who is here. Who's missing is Ignacio Gonzalez, mm-hmm. um, 
play uh, used to play for Valencia, but hasn't really seen much time this year anywhere. And the other one is escaping me at the moment. But most of the key players, most of the starters, are um, still there. Yeah, sure. One um, one starter who's who's very much still there, and who we've had a question from via email from Australian Dan, who can't make the recording this evening, uh, is the best player of the last World Cup, Diego Forlan. And um, we're we're wondering whether his uh, let's say personal issues are, are going to in any way get in the way of Uruguay's campaign. Should we explain these personal, we, personal issues? I think I'm we probably should. A lot of our listeners won't be. You know, they probably don't watch as much Canon Wavy as we do. No. Uh, <laughs> Not even as much as me, which is no. virtually zero. Um, he's he's broken up for the benefit of our listeners with with his Argentine girlfriend, Saira Nara. That's a Google image search for the gentleman recommended. There, there were some rumours that I alluded to in our little introductory joke, if if I can be generous enough to myself to call it that today, um, which was suggesting that he was doing so because he was about to come out, which hasn't yet transpired anyway. But you would think that it happening so so. You know, immediately, uh, so close to the start of the tournament. You know, whatever the reasons behind it, it, his head's bound to be a little, you know, in other places to some extent, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think uh, it's certainly not the same player. He's not going to be the same player that we saw in South Africa. But at the same time, um, he still has maintained his starting starting spot in the lineup, at least in the two recent friendly matches that Uruguay has played uh, against Germany and the Netherlands. And um, I think he has the trust of Oscar Tabarez and he, and the trust of his teammates. So I don't think it's going to be as much of an issue as maybe some of the media is making it out to be. Good. <laughs> from, from Uruguay's point of view, that's obviously good news. The other player, obviously, who's going to be key to Uruguay's attack, because Forlan... It has to be said, has, has perhaps not had the best season of his club career with Atletico over the last season. But Luis Suarez, on the other hand, since, since signing for Liverpool in January, has been superb. Um, he's, he's really revitalised Liverpool's season to, to some extent in England. I mean, y- you've got to think that he'll be hoping to have a slightly more, shall we say, a, a little more of a positive goal-scoring impact than the thing he's mainly remembered for, you know, at least in Anglican <laughs> countries, <laughs> last World Cup. Yeah, he's done, I mean, yeah, as most fans of the Premier League will tell you, he's done very well at Liverpool, and he's scored a couple of goals uh, for Uruguay. He scored uh, against the Netherlands uh, last week, I think it was, and they'll really be counting on him to um, put the ball in the back of the net, because even though the um, Forlan is there, and of course Edinson Cavani, who had a fantastic season for Napoli, mm. um he, they will both be playing a little deeper if the um, if Uruguay's friendlies are anything to read into, and it will be you know, primarily up to Suarez to to score, and that I think he'll be one of the big focal points for any team that Uruguay will come up against in the tournament. What kind of formation will you be expecting them to use? You mentioned that that Forlan and um, Cavani. Will be likely to be playing deeper, and English Dan's just whispered into my ear that he was about to ask the same question. <laughs> but the formation, by and large, I mean, I, I saw the match against the Netherlands. It was kind of four-three-one-two, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Is that how you'd describe it? And, and has it has the emphasis or whatever changed from the World Cup? Because obviously the manager's not changed. And it's um, well, they changed uh, they changed formation kind of midway through the World Cup, uh, if I recall correctly. They started out with more of a 
three at the back. Um, we call it a three, three, five, two, or three, four, three, depending on exactly who's playing. But since, yeah, since, uh, since maybe about the midway point of the World Cup, it's been mostly, it's been what I would probably call a four, four, three, one, two, or excuse me, a four, two, three, one. With um, you, you have two hardworking um, kind of defense, holding central midfielders with uh, Diego Perez and Egidio Arevalo, and then um, Suarez up top, and then you'll see Cavani play a lot on the right wing, I think, and uh, Forlan kind of dropping back into that central creative role. And then on the left wing, it will, it will sometimes vary. But um, you could expect to see a young, young player by the name of Gaston Ramirez, who plays for Bologna in Italy, or you might see Alvaro Pereira, who featured fairly prominently in the World Cup. And I think there was there's one person I wanted to ask you from, just having got back from Montevideo last night, and I spoke to quite a lot of people, like the majority, obviously, Peñarol fans who were going crazy, but also kind of crossed with a few Nacional fans, and they told me one player to look out for who's now in the squad, um, a defender by the name of Sebastián Cuates, who I've come come across a few times like in my uh, delvings into Uruguayan football. Yeah. So who made the squad? Can he? Does he have a chance? Well, I think a lot of it will depend on the status of um, their Uruguay's Atletico Madrid defender, Diego Godín, who recently injured himself. I think if he's unable to make the final cut, then Coates will probably travel with the team to Argentina. Coates is a player I personally rate very highly. He's 20 years old. He's featured regularly for Nacional for the past few years. Um, he's a technically is a very tall but also technically technically adept central defender who likes to get forward. Um, somewhat somewhat in the mold of say Lucio and but he's he's also a very you know, a defensively sound player and gives strikers a lot of problems with his size and strength. I think the thing I like about him the most at the moment having not seen him play live is just his name is I must, he must have kind of English descendants because it's coats kind of written, but in the right. way that Spanish people go crazy on English names, it gets changed into Juárez, which yep. sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he does kind of have that uh, European complexion. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the full full details about you know his origins, but you know, could could very well be. You've mentioned that he's uh, playing in in the Uruguayan league. Is this yeah. right? Yeah. And yeah, for Nacional. For Nacional, yeah, Nacional right. yes. I, I did know that. I'm not going to pretend I did anyway. And one of the things that I remember from my very first trip to Montevideo, which was in January of 2007, yes. um, was that one of the local newspapers, El País, who are in fact Uruguay's biggest newspaper yes. by a mile, on the day that we left the the city that time were complaining at the time and, and lamenting the state of Uruguayan football and saying that with the exception obviously of Diego Forlan, none of the players really were in top European clubs and saying that Uruguayan football is never going to be able to return again to the kind of heights that it achieved obviously in 1913 and 1950. And little did they know at that point that just over three years later <laughs> they were going to be back in the, the semi-final of the World Cup. Um, go away, dog. Um, they were going to be back in the semi-final of the World Cup. The Nacional, the year before in 2009, had a Copa Libertadores semi-final appearance, and of course now Peñarol have have got to the final of the Libertadores final, um, uh, the Copa Libertadores. And all of this, it really feels like Uruguayan football almost from nowhere 
uh, is enjoying a massive resurgence again. I don't know whether I mean certainly that was that was the impression I got as well last year. I went to the to Montevideo to watch the World Cup semi final with um with the the people of the city, let's say, in in Place Independencia in the city centre on a big screen. And it was fantastic fun and, and there was so much optimism around it. And for me I think that's gonna be the the thing that really is gonna make Uruguay a very dangerous prospect for particularly for Argentina and Brazil. In I think this if I can, um, if I can jump in on this point quickly, I saw the I saw the same when I travelled because I got the ferry over from Buenos Aires to Montevideo and obviously I think on the, my ferry there was about 50 Peñarol fans all coming from where they live in Argentina to the final and they were saying things very similar, I talked to quite a few of them, they saying that we've just got to enjoy this because it shows that Uruguayan football is on kind of its best moment for maybe 40, 50 years and you know, we're all, we're all on the up, they kind of would agree entirely with you, Sam. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with the sentiment that Uruguayan football is on the up. Um, there are a lot of very exciting young players coming through the uh, Uruguayan system, uh, the Uruguayan youth systems at the various clubs that you know maybe we won't see um, next month in Argentina, but um, that'll certainly be uh, you know featuring in say the twenty. 14 World Cup, 2015 Copa America, you know, players such as Nacional striker Santiago Garcia. And then you also have, obviously, the likes of Luis Suarez, Edinson Cavani, who are both 24 years old and playing at, you know, will be top European clubs, more or less. Um, so, um, yeah, I think not only is Uruguay positioned to do well in these coming months, but there are set up well for the future and I'm you know going off of what you were saying earlier about you know, in 2007 uh, kind of the lamentations um, of the Uruguayan press about and about the uh, quality of the team I think it kind of reflects you know how proud Uruguayans are of their soccer team or their, their football team because um, you know in a country of three million you know it's perhaps what um, what they're best known for in the, in the outside world. I think the pride is also kind of reflected in the team spirit and the way Uruguayan players um, play and play together in international competitions. It's a, a strange kind of cycle as well, and it, it, it's weird that it happens to be starting just now because if you go back through the history of the World Cups, when the year ends in zero, Uruguay always do well. <laughs> the, the 1930 World Cup, they won. The 1950 World Cup, they won. The 1970 World Cup, they reached the semis, having you know previously presumed that they were going to be long past past it. 1990, I think they were in the quarterfinal against all expectations, and obviously just last year they reached the semis again. And in between, they've not been quite so impressive. So it's interesting that that this time round, at least, it really seems as if this um, let's say overachievement, considering the the population that they've got to draw from, it looks like it might actually be be here for you know as you say a, a good four or five years more at least, with, with, with the age of some of the players coming through and everything. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think that, I mean, you saw it to a certain extent, um, you know, after, I guess, player reference would be the 1990 World Cup. They, you know, most, then they went out, went out and won the whole thing in 1995. And actually that was their uh, last, last trial to date. But, um, yeah, I think there's definitely... Um, you know, the setup is in place for at least another four or five years of success. And if we're going to talk about the uh, World Cups that end in the year zero, um, there's, you know, obviously strong rumors that Uruguay will host it in 
2030. So yeah, yeah in conjunction with Argentina, so not all, not all of our listeners actually actually will be aware of this, but so I should probably say because particularly it's something that I've been supporting off, and I signed the petition first about five years ago. There's an online petition which I might try and find and stick on the blog post oh, exactly. to try and and show your support for the Argentina Uruguay joint World Cup, so that the obviously. It would be unrealistic to ask Uruguay to host an entire World Cup. They've got one stadium with a uh, capacity of over 60,000 in the entire country. But so that the final, at least, can be played as close as possible to the, the 100th anniversary of the original final and in the same stadium, the Estadio Centenario. I think which... we can probably give hand pod support to this movement we'd like to see. Absolutely. In 2030, for sure. Yeah, I think if... we can speak for Seba and Nozidan on this. Hmm. I'm certainly for it. Yeah, so you're quite right. It could well be a chance for them to overachieve then as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe trying to predict a little too far into the future, but we'll see. Nick, one thing I'd like to ask you, we've talked about Uruguay's strength so far. I mean, we can all see they've got a brilliant attack and, you know, Forlan, Suarez and Cavani, very, very dangerous players. Like, can you see any any weakness in the team, something that could let them down in the tournament? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, there, there, are, there are a few kind of minor things. First of all, indisputed number one at this point for you know for the goalkeeping shirt is um, Lazio's uh, Fernando Muslera, and he is uh, you know he's still young for a goalkeeper. He's 25, and you know he's had you know imp- he's definitely improved over the last few years. But you know maybe there's still a little bit of inconsistency in his play. And um, if, and if he's on form, then you know Uruguay could do really well. But I think he's also the kind of player that might be prone to a mistake or two. Um, the other kind of weakness I saw is maybe a la- a, a bit of a lack of um, creativity in uh, in the center of the park, and that's a lot of the reason why Oscar Tabares has had Diego. Uh, Forlan dropped back kind of into more of an attacking midfield role is because there's not really a player who's who's come through that at least that is consistent that um is going to create create a lot from the center of the park because um Tabates likes to use those two defensive holding central midfielders and um there's some younger players who you know maybe will come on and make an impact off the bench um a player like Nicolas Ledero, who uh, plays for Ajax in the Netherlands, and used to play for Nacional. Again, there's no he he hasn't really found that, um, that kind of consistency that's going to allow him to feature in the starting eleven on a regular basis. Yeah, I'm um I'm, I was just giggling a bit when you said Ladero just then because I remember before the World Cup last year I was um contributing for <laughs> the British magazine When Saturday Comes to each of the Spanish-speaking South American countries for their um, World Cup preview. And I marked Lodero out as a player to watch if he came off the bench. And, of course, in the very first game, he came off the bench and made an absolutely hideous tackle and got sent <laughs> off within about three minutes. <laughs> and that was not my finest moment of, <laughs> of football punditry, let's say. It's fine. As Ozzy Dan has shown us, as Mystic Dan shows us, it's very difficult to make predictions. They yeah. have a way of going up in your face. It certainly is, yeah. Um, yeah. Is this one kind of would you say kind of black mark against um, the current resurgence in, in Uruguayan football with these players coming through? Or are there, are there some youngsters who do play that kind of position who, who might be coming in, obviously not for this Copa America, but for for future tournaments? I, I honestly, um, I don't, a lot, they have a lot, there's a lot of good um, kind of wing players, very attacking minded 
uh, coming through. For example, um, two two pinion role players who I would highlight as maybe ones for the future are uh, Jonathan Ureta Vizcaya, who is playing on loan from Benfica this year, and Matias Mier, who is a regular and will, uh, I believe, featured a few a few nights ago, featured again in the. Libertadores final. Um, he was also the uh, left winger, yeah. He was also yeah. the scorer of Peñarol's away goal in the semi, wasn't he, against Vélez? Yeah. And so those are two players that I can think of right off the bat that, you know, aren't going to be coming up, you know, th- for this Copa America, but we could see in, in the future in the 2014 World Cup cycle. But in terms of uh, in terms of central players, it's uh, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to see someone who might... Um, kind of might take that mental. Um, I think Lodero is still only 22. I think he still has, you know, still has room to grow. Um, and I think he has time to redeem himself from that kind of 2010 mm. World Cup showing. Because I remember I was, I was talking him up a lot, too, for the uh, for the final. So, you know, I know, I know that feeling. But, um, yes, I don't, I don't see too many. I mean, obviously, we'll, we can see, you know, someone in the next few years, maybe, um, but hard to see, hard to see anything, any creative central players coming up right now. Okay. We wanted to ask you as well about Uruguay's group. Now, this group is, is fairly unusual in that it's actually got two of the teams that we're doing in these special previews because, of course, we spoke to Cecilia Lagos a couple of weeks ago about the Chile side, and, and you would think on first glance that Group C is going to be played between those two since the other two sides are Peru, who are improving... At the moment, but we're at a you know they're improving from an incredibly low point that they hit a couple of years ago, and mm-hmm. the Mexico side, which will essentially be Mexico's under 23s. Although certainly one characteristic of Uruguayan football fans that I'm that I've always taken when I've been talking to them is they're very humble and and constantly pointing out that that Uruguay is a country of only three million people and that really anything that they manage to do in international football is massive overachievement. Never mind winning two World Cups. 14 Copas America and all the rest. You would think that the Uruguayan people at least are going to be hoping that that group will be um, that that Uruguay will be the winners of that group, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think I think they should. I mean, I think they can realistically aim to be winners of that group. I think Chile will give them um, a very difficult time um, in doing that, but it's really hard to see any kind of one-two finish in that group uh, besides your Uruguay and Chile. And um, I think it'll be interesting to see how. Uruguay and Chile um, match up, especially since it's um, they're I believe they're playing on yes July 8th and they're playing in uh, in Mendoza, so that will be almost an away game for Uruguay because yeah, it's yeah. maybe Mendoza maybe six hours from uh, Santiago. So, yeah, it's a point that we were making with with Cecilia as well, and she was agreeing that a lot of Chileans are probably going to travel over just for the day of the match to go to that one. And actually, it's, it's worth pointing out when you're when we're uh, thinking about uh, Uruguay finishing uh, top of their group is that Chile will be playing all their games in uh, the west, kind of the west of the country. I believe they're playing in San Juan, and I can't remember the others. Oh, they're playing their third the, game in Mendoza as the well. First, the first game they play Mexico in San Juan, and then the next two they play Uruguay in Mendoza and, uh, and Peru in Mendoza. Whereas Uruguay yeah. at least get a, let's say, a, an almost home side finish because they'll be playing their final game in La Plata, which is only slightly further away across the river than Buenos Aires. It's actually yeah. probably slightly closer from Montevideo if they get the ferry straight to La Plata. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I've no idea. No. They were thinking about building a bridge across from La Plata to Montevideo a few oh. years ago, which is ridiculous because it's about 100 yes. kilometres. That might be in place for 2030, I don't think we'll see it yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I think Uruguay shouldn't have any trouble with Peru or um, or the Mexico under-23s, though, you know, Mexico has a lot of young talent, and um, like you said, Peru is improving. They have a, they actually have a, an Uruguayan coach, uh, Sergio Macarian, who is um, who's a pretty impressive CV. So at the same time, they're not really opponents that um, Uruguay can take lightly. No, of course. And so if we look a little bit forward, uh, let's assume for a second that Uruguay finished first and they managed to get through their quarterfinal, which would be against the second in Group B, so maybe we could say Paraguay most likely. Yeah. Who would they be facing in the semifinals, respectively? Would it be Brazil or Argentina? Uh, let's have a look. We've got the tree here in front of us. Well, it's not the tree, in fact, it's the, the system. So if they were to that win... Brazil. If they won Group C, yeah, then they'd have Brazil in the semis. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is, is something that I've been thinking that... And I thought it during the last World Cup as well. If they had ended up playing Brazil, they looked the most likely to me, of the South American sides at least, to be able to give Brazil problems. Not necessarily... I'm not saying that Uruguay are necessarily a, a better side than Argentina. But Uruguay, let's say, are the team who I think will have the least qualms about kicking Brazil back if Brazil end up kicking them at any point, if I can put it so indelicately. Yeah, I think they I think they match up pretty well um, against Brazil. And I think they're kind of they're well equipped to um defensively and they're very organized and disciplined disciplined team that i think could really stifle kind of the uh the attacking talents brazil brazil has on offer and we've got um, um i mean obviously most if not all of our listeners will be aware of as, as much of uh, uruguay's historical record against brazil at the very least they'll be aware of the 1950 world cup final um i would hope <laughs> Uh, if our listeners are not aware of it, then of course the, the decisive match of the final group stage in the 1950 World Cup, because there wasn't a knockout point. Brazil needed a draw to win it, and they were playing it in Rio, and Uruguay came from behind to beat them 2-1 to win their second World Cup. And at the time, Brazil had a population of about 120 million, and Uruguay's was around 2.5 million. So it was um, a fantastic story, uh, if you were Uruguayan. If you were Brazilian, it's a disaster. Mm. I was reading just the other day, actually, that Brazilians apparently refer to it as our Hiroshima. Which <laughs> I've seen that before. It says more about the Brazilian psyche and, yeah. and the over-importance of the Brazilian national side there than, than it does about the Uruguayan uh, football team. But there's there's quite a history in, in Copas America as well, isn't there? It, uh, people have this image of Brazil, certainly people in Europe, and I suspect where you are, Nick, in North America as well. Of Brazil being the big dominant team in the in the continent on the basis of their five World Cup wins, um, mm-hmm. but as we were mentioning with Caetano in the Brazil preview, Brazil have won eight Copas America, I think Something it was like eight or nine, to, next to Argentina and Uruguay who've won fourteen each. And about right. three or four of Brazil's last, of Brazil's eight have come in the last few, yeah, last, last ten years or last fifteen years. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, that's it's it's always in kind of an interesting side note, and uh, you're very right about the kind of perception uh here in north america that is brazil and to a similar extent argentina who are really you know well known as forces in in world football but um despite you know all their accomplishments in, in south america and even their two world cup wins um uruguay is kind of less talked about side i think it's it's an interesting point that um brazil have won 
four, yeah, three or four of their last uh, of their eight wins in the last you know fifteen or twenty years. And Uruguay in 1995 were actually the last uh, last Rio Platense team to win it. And so it's, it sounds like it's kind of either Argentina or Uruguay are kind of due for a win. Yeah, and in fact we'll be discussing uh, Argentina's desperation to break this trophy drought that they've had going now for the last 18 years since the 1993 Copa. Um, we'll be discussing that in, in the Argentina preview. It, it, it's quite funny how... Um, Argentina-Uruguay is often seen as this huge rivalry. But uh, certainly for the, this Copa Libertadores final at the moment, a lot of Argentines have been supporting Peñarol because it feels like, you know, they see Uruguay almost as brothers. Um, right. And against Brazil, it's, you know, which is kind of at odds with what you sometimes see when it's Argentina-Uruguay on the pitch, which can get very, very tasty indeed. Um, Peñarol Independiente, Peñarol Vélez, which had its tasty moments on and off the pitch. Yeah. Before we move on to, to talking properly about what we've seen so far at the Copa Libertadores final, Nick, how do you think Uruguay, how far do you think they can go? Um, optimistically, I think they can get to the final. I think they have, they're the third, probably the third behind, you know, Argentina and Brazil on paper. And, and I think yeah, I think you know at the very least they should get to the semi-final, but the final could be is is not not unrealistic. And something that we've asked all of our guests as well is, who do you think the the most likely winners of the tournament are? I think I, I'm going to go with uh, with Argentina this year. Okay. Yep, I think they're I think they certainly have the quality. Um, you know, barring any any breakdowns from uh, Checho Batista. Um, you know, this should be this should be all right. Yeah, there was there was almost a, a lot of people talking about a breakdown from Sergio Batista last night on on Twitter. <laughs> whether you saw it, Nick, but um, yeah. <laughs> a, a series of random characters got tweeted, which happened to hit exactly 140 characters, and it came out of his um, Twitter account. It's since been deleted. It yeah. looks very much as if he just sat on his phone or something. But <laughs> a lot of people were were tweeting things along the lines of. Argentina's odds have just shot through the roof. Sergio Batista's lost it. <laughs> it was a very amusing little episode. So yeah. we're going to very briefly now talk about the the Copa Libertadores final since we've uh, since we've got a Uruguay expert and all three of us saw it. In fact, English Dan, as he's already mentioned, was at the game. What were your impressions of it, and and how 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 well do you think Peñarol will have to do in the second leg against Santos to to win now that they essentially failed to to get the win that they were supposed to be going for in the first leg? Um, well, I think, um, you know, they, they certainly have the character to, uh, to pull something off, to pull off the, I, what I would consider a, an upset at this point, because I think uh, Santos will be favored to win at home. Um, they, they won, they've won in Brazil before. They uh, beat Internacional uh, on the on the way to the final, which was in a pretty uh, very entertaining game uh, at Internacional Stadium. But I actually saw uh, something in the Uruguayan news today that uh, Pele, you know, who's always who's known for his spot on predictions, <laughs> um, will uh, said that Santa or not Santos, excuse me, Peñarol will likely play for penalties and um since especially since away goals uh if i'm not mistaken don't count in the final no that's quite right so um you know i think it's not a i mean it's hard to say they'll play for penalties because penalties is uh you know as we all know penalty shootouts can be a lottery um but i think they will definitely 
um, adopt um, a fairly fairly conservative approach um, and, and try to kind of stifle the creative uh, creative abilities of a player like a uh, player like Alano or a player like Neymar, um, uh, which they did a reasonably good job of, I thought, in the in the first leg. Yeah, I think I'd go along with that. I mean, the thing that kept being said to me on on Wednesday it was yeah when it finished a nil-nil draw and the mood in the stadium afterwards was a little bit depressed. Not so much of the performance, which wasn't spectacular, but it was a battling performance. I think what really kind of lowered the mood at the end was the fact that Peñarol scored a goal five minutes from time, which was mm-hmm. then disallowed, which obviously was a bit of a kick in the face to the 60,000 uh, fans in the Centenario. But one stat that kept getting repeated back to me, I think it was in the newspaper the next day, is that uh, every time Peñarol have won the Libertadores, and this is, they're going for their sixth title now. They've done it playing away from home. And so a lot of fans, I was kind of asking, you know, so what do you think? Is that gone? It's like, well, no. We, know, we knew that we'd have to do it away, and we can do it away. There's kind of, yeah, this belief that they have to like win it on foreign soil. And I think they've got a decent chance. Like, I saw nothing in the game which would suggest that Santos are on another level. They've got very good players. I mean, we all saw Neymar and what he can do. But apart from him, I think they're very very evenly matched teams. And I think it's going to be a very tight game. It's going to be decided by one goal. Or it could even go to penalties, yeah. I don't think Peñarol will go out looking for penalties. Yeah. Who are you supporting, Nick? Because um, I, I ran across a few Nacional fans. I, I wrote a preview of it of sorts for Soccernet. And a few Nacional fans... Um, mentioned in the comments of that. Actually, it might have been one or two rather than a few. But I certainly saw a few on Twitter as well said that they were supporting Peñarol in the game just because, although the rivalry is enormous at home, they were supporting the Uruguayan side of the final, which is something that, I mean, you wouldn't get that happening, say, between English clubs nowadays in the European Cup. You certainly wouldn't get it in Argentina. You'd never get, you know, if Independiente got to the final, you'd never get Racing fans. Whereas we saw in the Copa Sudamericana. Yeah, um, like even wrestling club players came out and said they were supporting Goyesh, yeah. which is pretty unprecedented. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> the fans, yeah, shit, but the players, yeah, well, well, I, I don't know. It's hard to say because uh, for me personally, I, I picked Santos to to win it all before the tournament started. So, you know, that's always nice. But I've kind of been, you know, a little disappointed in, um, I, in the way Murici, their coach Murici Romayo, has coached the team. Not not in terms of results, but um, you know, in terms of the style, they have an, an incredible you know array of of attacking players, at least by the standards of South America, the Copa Libertadores, or even the Brazilian league. But it's kind of been, you know, a, a more pragmatic approach for him. Um, we know this but, of Romalho, though. He's a he's always been known as a very like a pragmatic coach. He gets exactly. you know, he's happy winning one 0 every game. He's not what you call kind of a traditional Brazilian thinker if it comes to football. Well, yeah, and they were, I believe, if I remember correctly, Santos were coached, but had a different coach at the beginning of the campaign. I think it was Adilson Batista, but after some poor results, he was let go. So that was kind of, I wasn't, you know, it was thrown, I guess thrown for a loop a little. But as far as the supporting Peñarol thing goes, again, personally, um, oh, I'd say, I, you know, if I had to pick a team in Uruguay, I would sympathize with Nacional, like I said at the beginning of the show. But it's kind of always nice to see Uruguayan clubs do so well in international competition because like we've discussed it's a you know the country of you know three million people and so to go up against these big well-supported economic 
relatively economically powerful, um, you know, Brazilian teams and, you know, hold their own and even possibly win it is, uh, is a pretty incredible achievement. Absolutely, yeah. I was, um, I was saying, I think I might even have been saying it to you on Twitter, Nick, that my Uruguayan team have always been the Rampla Juniors because of their, frankly, silly kick color. I've never seen <laughs> a single minute of any of their matches, but uh, I, I like the name and I like the kit and I like the badge. But of the big two, because of the the Clásico that I was lucky enough to attend a few years ago in, in a pre-season friendly in the Centenario. And I kind of prefer Nacional, but I was still ended up wanting Peñarol to win it the other night. It was uh, just that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's the underdog thing and, and the fact that I think if you've been to Montevideo, if you've spent any kind of time in Montevideo, you can't help but feel a lot of sympathy and a lot of uh, affection for the people of Uruguay and also for the football because because it's just such a it's like traveling back in time going to Montevideo from a footballing point of view yeah I, I will agree with you on that on on Mon Montevideo I just remember being there and kind of you know kind of soaking especially being at the Centenario and you know like where they played the first World Cup final and it's very kind of um, you know people there are extremely passionate about football and extremely passionate about Uruguayan football and always um always something i've kind of admired um about about uruguay absolutely i think that's all that we we need to cover for, for this preview um it actually might be all that we have time for as well which is very nice because I've, I've got a few friends coming around in a minute um but thank you very much for joining us nick yeah thank um, you it's a pleasure to be on the show you're not coming down to argentina for the copper yourself are you or um, unfortunately not still have to, I have to still have to work up here with uh, with MLS and uh, and US uh, US soccer. Did we mention but, what Nick does? By the way, no, we don't. So, we didn't actually. We forgot to ask you, Nick. What is it that you do? I I make my living mostly um, cover like uh, covering soccer here in the United States. Um, I work for uh, the American edition of Goal.com, doing uh, as more or less more or less an editor at this point. And then I also write about my local MLS team, the San Jose Earthquakes, for um, for a local kind of sporting news outlet. So Interesting. that's yeah. That's, and then I, you know, my passion has been South American football. So I'll I when I get my free time, I like to tweet and write and all that all that good stuff about South American football. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. And to our listeners, uh, you'll just have heard Nick mention that, that he tweets a lot about South American football. His username is, is Nicholas, spelt the Anglophone way, not the Spanish way, so that's with an H. Nicholas Rosano, R-O-S-A-N-O. We'll, we'll obviously give him a, a follow when, when this goes online, which I think will probably be on Sunday evening, possibly Monday evening, because we've got a national holiday here in Argentina on Monday. But thank you very much for joining us, Nick. Uh, yeah, thank you. Papa, however you're going to be watching it. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, so yeah, so from now for our listeners, it's it's goodbye from from me, English English Sam. <laughs> goodbye from English Dan. Goodbye. And, and goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. Ciao, everyone. Ciao. Ciao. Ciao.